Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We actually went the first 11 verses last week, so we're going to start at verse 12 this morning. As you know, we've been going through, you know, we do expository teaching, which is verse by verse, passage by passage. Uh, we're really looking at uh, First and Second Samuel and then 1 Kings, part of 1 Kings, so we could see the kings of Israel. We saw Saul, then we've seen David, and now we've seen David's son, Solomon. And so we're going to see him, and we're going to, we're going to be through in chapter 11. When we get through in chapter 11, we're going to stop. So We've only got about uh, maybe four or five more messages from First Kings, and uh, and then after that we talked about starting the Book of Revelation. So we're going to do the Book of Revelation on Sunday morning. Uh, it'll be verse by verse, passage by passage. It'll be it'll be tough. It'll be a hard book. There's a lot of good stuff in it. There's a lot of things that fit together. The truth is this: when you study Revelation, you have to study Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24 and 25 and First and Second Thessalonians and Zechariah and Isaiah. You just have to put the Bible together to put together the end times, and so it's going to be really fun. So we got about five or six more lessons out of First Kings, where because we're going to get through chapter 11, which will be the life of Solomon, and that has been our thing. So that's where we are. I hope you're at First Kings chapter 8. We'll start at verse 12 in just a minute. We've seen the nations with the nation we're focusing on the third king Solomon when you say Solomon everybody says oh Solomon you know the wisest man who ever lived he had a thousand wives he was rich he was powerful but he's remembered for one thing that really really special and that is this Solomon was raised up by God to build the temple. That was his job. That was his responsibility. God set him aside to do that. In chapter 8, we're seeing the completion of the building of the temple and the dedication. And what we saw last time was the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk more about that in just a second. The Ark of the Covenant was where they covered sin and where God would dwell among his people. He would make his presence known. This morning, we're going to see Solomon praying. First, Solomon talks to the people and then he prays to God. And so we're going to see that. And, and there's a lot of things in there, and it's a long chapter. It's, it's 66 verses. We won't, we'll just get the first uh, through verse 30 this morning, and uh, we'll go quickly through it. We just want you to see it. And, and what we see is, as we look at this dedication, it is, it is the longest prayer in the Bible. So we're about to look at the longest prayer in the Bible, how it fits together, and uh, all of those things. So there's a lot of good things there. We're talking about the temple. Let me just begin by saying this. Some people could say, why would we, you know, go through these verses? We could just skip chapters 6, 7, 8, because that's the building of the temple. We could just look at Solomon's life and skip those chapters and go on to Solomon's life. Why, Why so much emphasis on the temple? Well, that's what emphasis the God's Word put. So we're, we do expository teaching, which means we go through the Bible. We don't really skip passages. But the, the second thing is this temple is, is amazing. You realize this temple was built where God would dwell among his people, Israel. And because of their sin, this temple uh, was actually destroyed. And then they built another temple that was a little bit smaller. And then Herod came in and built a giant temple. And then that one was destroyed in A.D. 70. And there hasn't been a temple since then except you. And we'll talk more about that in a second. There's going to be another temple built during the tribulation time period. And then that's going to be most likely destroyed. And then there'll be another temple built during the thousand-year reign of Christ when Jesus Christ rules on this earth. So when we say temple, it's, it's pretty important. And then you have to stop and think. You'd say, well, there is no temple today. Yes, there is. You are the temple what, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is in you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So when we start talking about the temple and the dwelling place of God, I mean, this is powerful. This is a building that Solomon had built for God, so to speak, 
but uh, it, it's, it's all over the, the scripture about the aspect being a temple. Well, l- l- as we start to this morning, we're talking about a prayer. And when you look at the Bible, there are a number of words for prayer. There's a word for prayer that means to ask for something. That means ask for something for yourself. That's a petition. There's another word for prayer, which means to ask for something for somebody else. That's intercession. There's another prayer, a word for prayer, that actually means to put your face on the ground. It's the idea of worship. Then there's another word for prayer, which actually means giving a thanks, that you thank God. And then there's another word for confession, which where you tell on yourself and you see all that. God's word tells us to be men and women of prayer, that uh, lifting up our request to God. Well, as we see Solomon's prayer this morning, we're going to see worship and praise and petition and the character of God and all of those things. And we're going to go as quickly as we can. I know sometimes when people look at passages like this, they go, could we not have skipped this? No, no, you can't. You can't skip the scripture. Here is the, the, the whole chapter. It's 66 verses. We saw bringing up the ark last time. We're going to see Solomon's speech and prayer this morning. We're going to get through about verse 30, and then we're going to keep going because he's going to not this morning, but we're going to keep going because we're going to see what his requests are and the blessing and the sacrifices and all of those things that all tie together. So let me remind you what's happened. Seven years it took Solomon to build this building, and it was magnificent. And then we saw last week they took the Ark of the Covenant, we'll remind you what that is in just a second, and they brought it up and put it in this building. Now the temple, this is, the, this is a pretty good draw, pretty good thing that looks like the temple. This was the place where they offered the sacrifices. This is the place where the priests washed, and they also had these little places they could wash on each side. Then they could go up these steps and go, and there was a front room and a back room, and the front room was called the holy place. It had lampstands and tables of bread. They're pictures of Christ. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life. There was an altar of incense in the back. He's the one that always prays. There was a veil, and then there was in the back room the Ark of the Covenant, which is really a picture of Jesus Christ. It was the place where they covered sin and where God would make his presence known. The Ark looked a little, you know, like this, best we could tell. It was a box made out of wood, which represented Jesus' humanity. It was covered over with gold, which represented Jesus' deity. He's the God-man. On top of that Ark was this lid, solid gold lid called the mercy seat, and the two cherubim. Cherub, that's a cherub, cherub, cherubim is the plural. And they were angels that looked down, so to speak. And God, they would pour the blood of animals on top of that to cover the sin of Israel. It's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ because he's the God-man who takes the sin of the world. Well, that's, that's where we are. And we saw last week, and if you look back at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, it happened that when they brought the ark in there, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud... Fill the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So I just want you to know that when they put the ark in that back room and got everything set, God's presence came in the form of a cloud. If you remember in the Old Testament, that it was called, it's called the Shekinah glory, and um, the, the cloud was, in the Old Testament, it was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and when they built the tabernacle, the cloud came and everybody had to leave. Now they build the temple, the cloud comes, and everybody's got to step out. And so at this, at this point, suddenly there's this giant cloud uh, over the temple, And Solomon's standing out front. All these people are standing out front. So Solomon's going to turn to speak to the people. Look what he says, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. So he starts off by saying the Lord said he would dwell in a 
thick cloud, and that's exactly what it is. There's a cloud by day and a fire by night, and the presence of the Lord has come, and Solomon recognizes it and says, Lord, you said you would come in a big cloud. And then Solomon says this. He says, I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. I want you to understand that Jerusalem is the permanent dwelling place of God. And when I say that, I don't mean good. He's, he's everywhere. He, he created the heavens and the earth. He's everywhere. And so he doesn't dwell in one little place. He makes himself known, especially at this time, he made himself known to the nation of Israel at the temple and actually at the Ark of the Covenant. So we'll talk more about that later. So all Solomon is saying is, I built this place for you. And as I said to you, there's going to be a time in the thousand-year reign of Christ as found in Revelation chapter 20 when, when Jesus Christ will be the king on this earth. He will rule from a temple in Jerusalem. And, and we'll talk about that. So now Solomon, and I'm going to go quickly. Solomon's going to turn around and he's going to talk to the people. Look what he says. Then the king faced and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. I want you to understand that in that day and time, uh, speakers. Now, Solomon is standing, but everybody else is standing. When Jesus would teach, oftentimes Jesus would sit and everybody else would stand. And so in that day and time, the teacher usually sat down and the pupils stood up. It's a little bit different nowadays, and, and so we do it sort of a different way. But here, Solomon, he's going to stand in front of the people. Second Chronicles tells us that he built a platform four and a half feet high so he could stand up in front of all the people and they could hear him. Now he's going to start to pray. And look what he says in verse 15. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hand saying. I'm going to stop there. God, basically, the whole prayer is going to be this. Solomon says, God, you made a promise to my father and you fulfilled it perfectly. You always do what you say. Now, I want you to understand that we can say exactly the same thing. Whatever God says is always true. God always fulfills anything that he promises. Why? Because he cannot lie. Titus 1 verses 1 and 2 says God who cannot lie. And he's also all powerful. He was able to do anything he promises. So I want you to understand that in the Bible, there are a lot of promises. And there are promises for us who know Jesus Christ as, as our Savior, that we've trusted in Christ for eternal life. There are a lot of promises. You know what he said to me? He said, I give you eternal life, you'll never perish. He said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. When I get it ready, I'll come back and get you. He said that I'll provide every need that you have. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we have all kind of promises, and every promise that he's ever made always comes true. So you can count on that. That's why it's so important to know the Word of God, know how it fits together, understand the truths and the promises that God has for us. Well, he goes on to say, and, and he's saying, uh, this is, he's speaking for God because he's saying what God has said. Verse 16, since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, God brought them out of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house for my name, uh, my, my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people. Now, he starts off by saying, when I came out, when I brought the nation out and put them in the land, I did not pick a city to build a temple. He didn't do that. Notice he goes on to say, verse 17, but it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it's in your heart to build a house for your name, you did well that's in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son 
who will be born to you. He will build a house for my name. So I want you to understand something that he actually says, when I brought the nation out, I didn't have a place planned. King David said, I think I want to build a house for God. And God said, good idea, but you're not going to get to build it. Your son is going to get to build it. I wanted to go back at verse 16 where he talks about how he brought the people out of Egypt. He redeemed them out of the bondage. He purchased them by sending the Passover lamb and the blood was shed. It is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. He saved the firstborn and they all belong to him. Jesus Christ did the same thing for us. He redeemed us. We've been brought by the blood of the lamb and he purchased us. And so he basically says, my son David, it was, it was uh, Solomon says, my dad, David, wanted to build the house. God said no. He said, your son gets to build the house. And then look at verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David. I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. You know what he says? God fulfilled his word. The Lord fulfilled his word. What did he do? He raised up Solomon to take his father's place and to build the house. Now, I want you to notice something as you look through these words, uh, through these verses. You notice every time you see the word Lord, uh, the word Lord, it just verse 18, the word Lord is in verse 20. The word Lord is in uh, two times in verse 20. It's, it's almost in every section there. It's back all the way at verse 12. The word Lord, if you notice, it's all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means something. Sometimes you look in the Old Testament and it'll be a capital L and a little O-R-D. That's the word Adonai. It means master. It means deity, but it means master. But when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which you see in this passage, that's the personal name of God. It's Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it Yahweh. We're not sure how to pronounce it, but that's what we say. And it is the personal name of God. And so when Solomon is praying... He's praying to God in a personal way. He's calling God by his personal name. And so he says, what did God do? God raised up Solomon to take the father's place as king and to build the house. I want you to understand, and we mentioned it a while ago, that God keeps his word and whatever promises he gives to us, whatever he says, whatever he does, you can count on that. And so every one of us in this room, sometimes when you think about the Bible or you think about what it says, sometimes we think it, it's not really for us or maybe it's for somebody else, but not for us. But let me tell you, when the Bible gives a promise to you, now not everything in the Bible is for us, but when you see it and it's for us, you can count on it. When he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, you don't have to worry. When he says, I'll provide all your needs. When he says, you can do all things through the one who strengthens you. When he says, I've gone to prepare a place and get you. When he says, I give you eternal life, you can count on every one of those things. Well, Solomon ends it by saying this. He says, the Lord has fulfilled it, and he's, he's built the house. And then verse 21, he says, there I've set a place for the ark, and which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers, and which he brought them from the land of Egypt. Now, he ends up by saying, I've built the house, and I've brought the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when we think about it, we say the Ark of the Covenant, what, it, what's, what's the big deal about it? We've already shown the, the picture, and he, basically he says the Ark of the Covenant is the key. It's the key to everything. Now, I want to remind you of something. God made covenants with the nation of Israel. He made covenants with mankind as a whole, and he has made five covenants with the nation of Israel. Now, let me show you. 
He made a covenant with mankind when he said, I will, back to Adam and Eve, I will send the seed of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the savior of the world. That's to every mankind. Then after the flood, after they came off of the ark, when they got out, God told them, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to make another covenant with you. I will never flood the world again. And he said, I'll put a bow in the sky that when you see the rainbow or when I see the rainbow, he says, I'll never flood again. Those are covenants that God made with every human being. But God came along and he made five covenants with the nation of Israel. The first person that is the nation of Israel is Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And then it spread all the way down to King David, all the way to Daniel, all the way to Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is, a Jew, is Jewish. That's the, Jew, the promise. Now, God made a covenant with Abraham. He made four unconditional covenants with the nation of Israel. We call it the Abrahamic covenant the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, let me tell you what happened. I'm going to go through it real fast. But God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and told him to leave where he was, go to a land that he would show him and that land he'd give him. He said, I'm making a deal with you. I'm going to do this for you. It's unconditional. Abraham didn't have to do anything. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land to live in. I'm going to give you a descendants. And in one of those descendants will be the Messiah, will be the Savior of the world. And I'm going to bless you so that you can bless every nation in the world. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. And of course, the land is the land of what we call Israel, and the and the the the, the descendant is ultimately is Jesus, is the Jewish people, but it's Jesus. And the blessing is that salvation comes to the world. Following that, God made three more covenants with with them, and the call the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, and they all go back to Abraham. The Palestinian covenant goes back to the land. The Davidic covenant goes back to the seed, to the Messiah, and the new covenant goes back to the blessing. So God made those covenants with the nation of Israel. They're all unconditional. They're all going to completely happen one day. They will all be fulfilled when Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He made another covenant with Israel. We call it a conditional covenant. It was the Mosaic law. It was a covenant that he made with the nation. When they came out of Egypt, they went across the Red Sea, went to a place called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. He gave them the law, started with the top 10 commandments. They broke them all. So he gave them 613 when it was all over with. He gave them 613 commandments for the nation of Israel. And this is not a unconditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant. He says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you do not obey me, I will curse you. And he's talking about his own people there. And basically he said, you'll get to live in the land and do everything good if you obey. If you disobey, I will remove you from the land. They disobeyed. He removed them in 722. They disobeyed. He moved them in 605. They disobeyed. He moved them, removed them in 70 AD. It wasn't until 1948 that Jewish people got to be Israel again and live in their land. So Mosaic law is a conditional covenant. It ended 
When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he is the end of the law to all who believe. So I just wanted you to see that. I just wanted to uh, kind of give that to you. The idea there is um, this all a foreshadow of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. All of the law, all of the sacrifices, the temple, the, everything is a picture of Christ. Now, watch what happens. He's done all this talking. Then verse 22, Solomon is now about to pray. He's going to pray to God. And by the way, this is, as I said, this is the longest prayer in the Bible. And we'll go through this as quickly as possible, okay? So look at verse 22, and we won't do the whole thing, of course, today. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. He stood in front of all the people, and he did this. Now, before he's through, he's going to be on his knees, because at the end of the prayer, it says, as he was kneeling, he got up. So we don't know exactly how he changed or when he changed, but he starts off holding his hands up just like this. And as we see this prayer, there'll be praise, worship, and he'll petition God. Look at verse 23. He said, and I'm going to go quickly. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He said, listen, there's nobody like you. There's no other God like you. There's nothing like you. In heaven or earth, you, 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 you love us, you take care of us, you, you, walk, we, you, you show great loving kindness. Let me, let me show you this. He is quoting Deuteronomy. Look what it says. Therefore, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is, he is God, he is faithful, he keeps his covenant, his loving kindness to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. That's almost the same thing that, that Solomon said right there. And so he says, you keep your covenants, you do, you, you walk before us. There's a word in there that I just want you to look at in verse 23. It says, keeping covenants and showing loving kindness. Loving kindness is a Hebrew word, hesed. It's, it's pronounced hesed, and it's H-E-S-E-D, and it means a loyal love. It means a love that never ends. It means a love that never changes. Sometimes when we sin, we think God may not love us as much as he did before we sinned. We're wrong. His love never changes. It's always to the maximum. When you serve God, he loves you to the maximum. When you're not serving God, he loves you to the maximum. His love never changes. And that's that Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's hesed in the New Testament. We get the word agape. It's the same kind of word. It means an unchanging, unconditional love. Now, here's the promise. Watch what he said. We who have kept with your servant, my father David, which you promised him. Here's what he promised. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and you've fulfilled it with your hand this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel if only your sons take heed to their way and walk before me as you have walked. Here's what he said. God gives us and keeps his promises. Here's the promise. If they obey God, they will have a king on the throne of Israel. If they disobey God, they won't have a king on the throne of Israel. And that's what he told them. And by the way, what happened? They disobeyed God. The nation divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was taken off in 722. No king anymore. The southern kingdom was taken off in 605. No king anymore. And do you realize after that, when they came back, they were under the Medo-Persians, the Greco-Macedonians, and the Romans. They never had a king. They were spread out in 70 AD all over the world. They came back in 1948 to Israel. They don't have a king. They have a prime minister and they have a president, but they don't have a king. 
the next time the nation of Israel will have a king is when they as a nation believe in the Messiah as Savior and he sets up a kingdom and rules for a thousand years. You know when Israel will believe in Jesus Christ as Savior? It happens during the tribulation. We'll talk about that when we study the book of Revelation. So here's the promise. He said if we obey, we get to have a king on the throne. If we don't obey, we won't have a king on the throne. Verse 26, now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father, David. God always keeps his word. He'll never leave us. He can do beyond what we could imagine. We don't ever have to worry. Whatever God promises, he always does. And then he says something amazing. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built? Solomon recognizes, listen, we just built this house. You don't live here. You're God. You're everywhere. You're all over the whole. You created the heavens and the earth. You're everywhere. This is just a place that represents you, and you're going to make your presence known here so we can be with you. That's really what he's saying. You realize where that presence is today? You. You're the presence. How we live today, we may say, it doesn't matter how I live. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This was the temple of God in Solomon's day. You're the temple of God today. So it's important how we think about this sort of thing. And so what does Solomon do? Solomon goes, wow. And so look at verse 28, and I'll go quickly through verse 28. You have regard, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant, to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Do you realize in verse 28, Solomon uses says prayer five times. Look at this. He says, you have re- yet have regard to your prayer, to the prayer, one, of your servant to his supplication, that's two. Oh, Lord, my God, listen to the cry, that's three. And to the prayer, that's four, which your servant prays, that's five. He pray- has five words for prayer in there. Solomon is praying to God. What about us? We can go to God anytime, anyplace, anywhere about anything. Hebrews 4.12 says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Did you know that you can approach the throne of God boldly? But there's a reason. Because Jesus Christ has already gone before you. He is your intercessor. He is the in-between. You can approach boldly because Jesus has already gone and he makes intercession for you. Second, 1 Thessalonians says pray without ceasing. So we ought to keep on praying day in and day out. 1 John 1, 5 says pray according to the will of God so we can be praying all the time. Look what God says in verse 29 and 30 and we'll end. He says, he says that your eyes, he's talking to God, that your eyes will be open toward this house night and day toward the place which you have said my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, here and forgive. Now I'm gonna come back to the forgive, but I want you to understand, he's actually saying, keep your eye on this house. Listen to our prayers. Do you realize that the Jewish people, when that building was there or where it was, they always say, pray toward the house. Now, the house is gone, but you know, Jewish people still pray toward it. You remember when Daniel was taken off into captivity, they destroyed the temple. It was gone. But when Daniel was in Babylon and that Daniel opened the window to pray, 
He prayed toward the temple. That's what Jewish people do because God said, they said, please look, let us look to this place and hear our prayers. Now, he ends something that I want you to look at, and that is the very end of verse 30. He says, here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. We need forgiveness. Uh, the word forgive here is a Hebrew word that is only used for God doing the forgiving. It's a pretty powerful word. I want you to understand forgiveness for just one second, and then we'll close in prayer. I want you to understand forgiveness is releasing the debt. Sometimes we, somebody does us wrong, and we say, I'm not going to forgive them. What you're saying is, I'm not going to let them off the hook. Forgiveness is you saying, I let it go. I'm, I'm not going to try to get them back, and I'm not going to try to make them come tell me they're sorry. I'm forgiving them, which means I'm releasing the debt. That's what it means. Actually, forgiveness is for your good. Now, there's forgiveness from God to us, and I want you to see this. Now, it's a little bit harder to, to grasp, but I want you to get it. There is what we call positional forgiveness, which for all sins for all time. When you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, that exact moment, every sin you've ever done, ever will do, doing now, it, it's all forgiven right then. The east is for the west. It's gone, Okay. Then there is also called experiential forgiveness, which means as you go through your Christian life and you sin, you need forgiveness. Now, this first one, this positional forgiveness, has to do with our relationship with God. It never changes. The second one is spiritual, uh, experiential forgiveness has to do with our fellowship with God. And you can be out of fellowship. You can have sin in your life as a believer. And so we confess our sin and he uh, forgives us. So that's the two aspects of forgiveness. I just wanted you to see that. Sometime we'll go into a lot more detail on that. If you've ever been in my 2-2 uh, uh, class on Wednesday nights, we really go into a lot of details about the whole idea of forgiveness and how it all fits together, those things like that. But I just wanted you to see that because he talks about forgiveness there. Okay, so now let's quickly look at some applications. The first of all, let's trust God's word. Uh, what does Solomon say? He said, your words, you always fulfill your words. You always keep your promises. Why? Because you can't lie and you're always able to do it. And so whatever he says, trust him. And think about the word of God. You study it, you dig it, you put it together. You trust the word of God. Second thing, let's praise and glorify God. Why? Well, first of all, there's nobody like him. He's all glory and power and majesty. He rules heaven and earth. Uh, that house, that giant temple that they built couldn't, couldn't contain God. Nobody like him. He keeps his word, so we trust him. He answers prayers all the time, and his love never changes. So may we praise and glorify God. Finally, third thing, uh, let's be men and women of prayer. Think about it. We can worship God as we pray. We can offer up petitions and ask for things. We can make intercession, ask him for others. We can thank God. And we can confess our sins. So let's be men and women of prayer. And then finally, let's understand forgiveness. It comes by faith in Christ. Positional, all sins for all time. Experiential, daily. Positional is our eternal life salvation. Never changes. Experientially is our Christian life. And it changes. And so we have, when we have sin in our life, we have to confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse.